Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 34, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Just before the August bank holiday weekend here in the UK, that means summer is almost over. Yeah, I know, it's, <laughs> it's starting to feel a bit cold. Definitely got that kind of autumn buzz in the air right now, haven't we? Yeah. And I'm just thinking, we've been doing the show now, 34 episodes, in th- four months we'll have been doing this a year? God. Yeah. Oh, it's going to be a great celebration then, isn't it? What a year we've had in 2016, though. And uh, listen, guys, we appreciate listening to the show every single week. We did mention last week that we've actually put a donations button on our website. You know, if you want to help support the show, yep. just towards the running costs and that kind of thing. And a massive thank you to Rupert Fuller, who uh, made a very generous donation in the week as well. Now, we've got some amazing guests coming as well, guys. Like, I, Dan knows who's coming on. and <laughs> I, I want to give spoilers, but I can't. Yeah, I, I'm just absolutely blown away. So, yeah, we're just going to be going into Galactic with this. It's going to be great. Honestly, I think the rest of 2016, we could even excel what we've done so far on this show. So uh, yeah. definitely keep checking us out. Every single Friday, of course, available from all your favourite podcast clients, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Unfortunately... Not yet on Google Play. <laughs> no. Yeah, and we've got a reason for that. We can't do it in the UK. Yeah, <laughs> Google Play's not out here. So. We keep getting people going, yeah, when are you going to be on Google Music Play Store? And we're like, yeah, and for every time we log on, it's not available like outside the US at the moment. So as soon as it is, we'll be on there. Don't worry. Totally. <laughs> and uh, talking of guests, we have one for you specky users today. Yeah, now uh, today, um, I, this guy actually holds a bit of a record for... Um, having more Spectrum games under his belt than any other author. Yeah, and <laughs> he's is, still making them. So, he is. You know. He's been doing it since the late 80s. And it's uh, Jonathan Caldwell. Now, you may know him from uh, Egghead. That was one of his famous games back then. And he used to do cover tapes for like Crash and Sinclair User. Yeah, and he's a local guy, so he's just come into the studio. Yeah, which you know, always nice to get him in, a bit yeah. of eye contact. That's it. <laughs> so uh, he's going to be on the Retro Hour in about half an hour from now. One for the Spectrum fans today. It's going to be really, really interesting, so definitely worth hanging around for that. And uh, you're going to be doing some streaming on Facebook this weekend. Uh, yeah, I've managed to hook up my Amigas, which I've talked about a lot, to DJ with. Now, I've, I've talked about this Lowe's, mm-hmm. but now you guys can actually see it and interact with me. So on <laughs> Sunday, I'm just going to go on Facebook Live, on the page, and just see what happens. <laughs> so this is going to be on the Retro Hour podcast's Facebook page. Yeah. So if you haven't liked us on Facebook yet, here's a reason. Ravi's debut DJ set live <laughs> on the internet on Amiga 1200s. Have you got a time? Uh, I'd say Sunday at 1pm GMT. Okay. So if you go on Facebook and like the Retro Hour podcast, you actually get a little alert on your phone anyway, don't you, when a, when a page goes live? Yep. So that should pop up. And I'll be sharing it on all the Amiga pages, of course. So. Yeah. Now, uh, speaking of the Amiga, obviously the biggest thing in the world of the Amiga right now are the Vampire Accelerators. I've just ordered mine. It's been sent yesterday. Oh, my God. You got your little wait. alert in the post, didn't you? Yeah, it's yeah. on the way. Well, we've actually got one of the Vampire team who's going to be coming on the podcast in uh, all the next 10 minutes or so, Gunnar, who uh, he kind of does a cause, a software cause for the um, the FPGAs. Mm. So he's going to come on and give us... Um, he needs he needs basically the community's help in deciding what's going to be next for the vampire. Well, yeah, you guys can help decide, you know. Yeah, what's going to be in the A1200 and 4000 versions and all that, and also find out a bit more about where they're at right now. So uh, we'll talk more about that in the next 10 minutes. First of all, though... Straight into this week's stories, and there's been a pretty big celebration. The World Wide Web is 25 years old. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Like, what was the first 
website you went on, Dan. <laughs> Back then, I think it was, I think Yahoo was the first yeah, site I ever visited. Right. When they had the, you know, it was all indexed, wasn't it? The little catalogue they had and you just click through and you're like, wow, there's so much on here. There's like yeah, 10 websites. Yahoo <laughs> chat. And you know, you know, one thing that I was amazed about mm-hmm. was how many people didn't give a crap. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, the only people on my Facebook and news sites were posting it. Only a small amount. What about the anniversary the other day? Yeah, yeah. You'd think 25 years of the internet, everyone would going mental <laughs> well let's just it's 25 years of the web of the, the internet web. obviously oh, goes oh, yes, back to the yes, 60s yes, the world wide web I yes. saw lots and lots of websites internet. doing that saying you know the internet's 25 and it's like no that actually dates from the late 60s Yeah, it's a world wide web but I mean there is actually Tim Berners-Lee who obviously he was at CERN um, he was the guy at the end of the Olympic ceremony. He was there, wasn't box. he? Yeah, yeah. 20, London 2012. And he, it, the machine that he developed it on was a Next Cube. Mm. Um, you know, Steve Jobs, when he left Apple, went yeah. to run Next. And that was a machine that the, the web was developed on originally, the project. And you can actually still see his original machine. At CERN, isn't yeah. it? Well, yeah. I think they've actually moved over to London to the Science Museum for a couple of weeks at the moment. Well, we've got to go, man. <laughs> uh, so you can see it. I, we posted that on the Facebook and it got a great reaction. Well, there's even a sticker on the front of it, isn't it? And it yeah. says, do not power down this machine. It's a server. <laughs> you will break the internet. It's crazy that you can actually still visit the original World Wide Web first page on CERN servers. It's still up. Excellent. I didn't know about that. Yeah, it's, um, it's, I'll pop the address in the show notes at theretrohour.com, but it kind of talks about what the web is. So it says here, the World Wide Web W3 project is a wide area hypermedia information retrieval initiative aiming to give universal access to a large universe of documents. Do you think it would have sold if people used that as a tagline? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't quite the catchiest, was no. it? But um, the anniversary that we celebrated this week was when it went public, so when it first opened to anyone to log on, not just people inside CERN. Mm-hmm. So that was the anniversary, but I was reading um, a bit about the history of this and Tim Berners-Lee apparently didn't like it when Mosaic, you know, the first um, graphical browser came around. He, he was, wanted it to be text-based. He was scared that people were going to share pictures of naked ladies. Oh, God. <laughs> In hindsight, he was right. <laughs> he was completely right, yeah. <laughs> so I just thought that was hilarious, though. And there's actually... But then at any medium, you've got to be worried about that. You know. <laughs> so happy birthday to the World Wide Web, 25 years old this week. What do you think it'll be in 25 years? Oh, God, broken. More, more naked ladies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, Full of uh, porn. <laughs> well, there has been, obviously, kind of a, a mini console mania that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. And uh, someone else has joined the party now. Uh, yeah, there's a, a, a new one called the Analog NT Mini. Well, it's an old machine that they've kind of updated. And this is a bit different from the other ones. So, you know, you can actually put original cartridges in this and play it. A bit like a Retron. So this is, um, it's a NES, isn't it? A classic Nintendo. Yeah. Um, And they've even got, you know, shots of people using, like, you know, the original controllers, using light guns as well. It's actually got the original controller ports on the front of it. Yeah, and of course, with the light gun, they've got to have it on a CRT monitor. Well, the good thing about this system is, I mean, it's, um, you know, there have been a lot of these kind of cheap knockoff consoles. This has got a really, really high build quality. It's made of, like, aluminium. Okay. And, you know, apparently it feels really, like, solid and quite weighty. But also, it's got a um, Bluetooth chip in there, so you can even use, like, you know, a DualShock 3 or a Wii Remote to play NES games. And it's got pretty much every kind of video output that you could imagine. Composite to HDMI, does lovely upscaling to 1080p of all these games as well. That's really interesting, because a load of these new machines are HDMI only, mm-hmm. and you can't run them on the you know, original CRTs or yeah. the older stuff. So th- that's really cool that they've added the, you know, yeah, the many, many different analog outputs. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, it's... Um, that's the name, I guess. <laughs> the only thing about it is, though, yeah. that this is pretty expensive. How much are we talking? $450. Um, and then I think 
people will buy them online though as well and they'll be you know maybe 300 yeah 340 quid i reckon you came in i mean you could go on ebay and buy an original nez with a bunch of games for like half that price but then you know it's old hardware it's not supposed to be made new and i think there is something to be said for i mean someone points out here you could buy a ps4 and xbox one with that and a bit left over a game or two so you got to be a pretty hardcore fan to buy it but i think it's cool that people are kind of you know, appealing to the higher end of the market as well. Yeah, it's good that there's two levels. There's this lower end trashy ones that everyone's using and mm-hmm. there's these higher end, really expensive ones for the ultra geeks. So, <laughs> yeah, if you want a nice, uh, something nice and expensive in your Christmas stocking this year, it could be worth looking at. Yeah. Now, obviously, we mentioned the uh, vampire project at the start of the show there. Um, I've had a vampire too for my Amiga 600 for about, could it might end of May? Yeah. Upgraded it to a Silvercore 9, I think it's on now. Um, blazing fast. I mean, stuff like, you know, classic Mac emulation. Been running, like, you know, Windows 3.1 and stuff on it as well. I've seen your video on it, Dan. I, I watch it quite a lot because I'm just waiting, you know, in well, anticipation. You've joined the party now, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to be doing a video on this as well. And uh, it's going to be a lot more exciting than everyone else's because they're like, this is my comparison of the vampire. Mine's going to be like, ah, <laughs> <laughs> I've got it, you know. Bit more energy than mine. Yeah, oh, God. <laughs> well, we want to get someone on from the vampire team now because we get a lot of people asking, you know, every time I see it on forums, people are kind of speculating about what's going to be coming next and where's the future of this project going to go. So we thought, let's just go straight to the team. Yeah, totally. Why not ask them? Exactly. So we've got him on the phone right now, all the way from sunny Germany. Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, Gunnar from the vampire team. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Now we How thought. Are you? Yeah, we're very good, thank you. Now, we thought we'd get you on because, um, you know, both being big Amiga guys, I think it's fair to say the vampire boards that everybody's loving at the moment is the most exciting development in the world of Amiga in the last, like, what, decade? I've been waiting since <laughs> 1999 to get this board. World of Amiga 99. <laughs> so, for people that might not be keeping up with this project, though, Gunnar, just briefly explain what is the vampire? Well, the vampire is um CPU accelerator, and it's using FPGA technology, So FPGAs are ships similar to those ships which were used on some CPU cards in the Amigas before, which were programmable. And what we did is implement a complete 68K modern CPU into them. Now, we're talking some incredible speeds here as well. I mean, how quick have you got the Amiga 600 running now? Well, um, this info shows 100 30 MIPS, so um, pretty decent. <laughs> we talking about, what, 115 times the original performance? <laughs> yeah, about like this, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I know everyone's trying to get hold of these vampire boards at the moment, um, and there's, there's a team of you guys making these. How many orders have you actually taken then? Um, I think we have a backlog of a couple hundred right now. Um, but we are working, first maybe I, I need to make clear, well my part in the project is the design of the CPU core. So we call it the Apollo C8 080 now. And this CPU core is basically a leftover or a child of the Natami project. This was a goal to make a new chipset for the Amiga, wasn't it Natami? Like a new machine? Yes. So Natami was a um, pretty ambitious project, it was including uh, AGA sh- chipset re-implementation and adding on top of this modern screen modes like um, full HD and these kind of things. And we also, the first Natamis were built with CPU modules using uh, 68K 060 CPUs. 
um, which we clocked at around 100 megahertz. Um, but um, the supply or yeah, the SCs were not produced anymore by Motorola. Um, it was clear that in the long run we need some replacement. And we started at that point uh, to develop a new CPU, compatible with the old ones, but to be faster than the O60. Well, the amazing thing that I find is that you guys are actually planning to bring the AGA chipset to the older ECS machines or OTS, like Amiga 600 and 500. Could you explain that more? This is more or less a coincidence uh, of two people meeting. This was... Um, Igor, who produced an FPGA card targeted as a, um, a memory upgrade and CPU upgrade, and um, he was contacting me. Who, he know, knew me from the Natami website, and um, well, at the end, he asked me a lot of questions about how to implement the CPU and the FPGA and so on, and at the end of the day, um, we joined up and um, he got our already started CPU for the Natami project in his vampire cards. So it's Igor who does those vampire cards. I'm not doing them. Um, I'm only, only in quotes, maintaining uh, the CPU core. What kind of thing are people using the vampire for at the moment then? Well, the vampires right now are available for the um, Amiga 600. And right now there's also a model available for the Amiga 500. Well, I uh, run um, normal Amiga OS uh, 3.1 with some patches. Um, I run Mac OS in Shapeshifter and Fusion Emulator on this. This runs pretty nice. Um, all those nice old Mac games run pretty well. World of Warcraft. Uh, I know Warcraft 2, not World of Warcraft. Warcraft 2, I was playing Settlers, um, Heroes of Might and Magic. Pretty nice games. Yeah, my son likes them very much also. I, I use the Amiga always as an MP3 jukebox. This works pretty nicely. And we are right now also trying to tweak um, video players. So our goal is to, to, to reach um, a smooth playback uh, up to a size of 640 times 400. So that what, what we usually had all those AVI uh, CDs in the old days, these kind. Um, I think you can play back smoothly with a little bit of tuning. Because that blows my mind that, you know, I can use my Amiga 600 with a vampire card, and I've actually got a, a faster 68K Mac than any of the original Apple machines that came out. I can play MP3s in it and watch videos on the workbench. It's like, you never thought you'd see that. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> pretty nice. It's what we always wanted to have in the 90s, isn't it? Well, the thing that everyone's looking forward to that I see on the Amiga forums is the Amiga 1200 version of the vampire, which is... Uh, in production at the moment. Can you tell us a bit about that then? What will it be like? What will it feature? Yeah, uh, well, it will be um, very similar, but have more memory. And we're also testing or expecting in the next month to get our first standalone boards, which will have um, yeah similar spec like the Vampire, but a little bit more memory. We are having now one gigabyte of memory on them. And these will be standalone me machines that you can just put in a case and use as like an Am Amiga system, pretty much? Yes, they're basically um, an Atami light, if you say. <laughs> right. So we there have not that many uh, connectors. Um, like on the Atami, it was planned like or it included PCI and whatever you could think of. They are more like the Vampire with um, video out, HDMI, 
um, IDE Compact Flash Connector, SD Card Connector, Joystick, Mouse, Keyboard, um, Ethernet, um, and that's it. No parallel port, no, yeah, no, not so much no legacy uh, connectors. And uh, this board, would you be able to put other cores in there, say an Atari core, or just any ones that are being worked on? In theory, yes. Um, I mean, our primary goal right now is to get the Amiga system running in those. But, uh, I mean, um, putting a Atari chipset isn't, wouldn't be difficult to do. When can we expect this, then? <laughs> um, we, as a team, expect to get the first standalones next month. Um, and we need to test them. There will be a lot of things to do, so I cannot promise any sales date yet. <laughs> when it's ready. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I mean, the elegance of the vampire is that it doesn't rely so much on so many features being complete, right? I mean, we started to sell those vampires last Christmas, and at that point of time, the CPU was running, uh, but the uh, HDMI out, uh, wasn't uh, fully developed, the drivers weren't fully developed for this, but it was already usable for the customers, right? So the customers could buy the CPU card and, and benefit from having 100 MIPS CPU power playing MP3s and such, and we could then um, piece by piece provide the drivers for the HDMI video out, the true color video out, for the SD card, and so on. Um, so this makes it's possible for us to develop this stuff um, piece by piece. Right now with um, standalone, this is of course not the case. With standalone, everything needs to work, right? If you boot it up you and you want to play an old Amiga game, you want to hear this emulated uh, Paula sound chip to, to hear everything. So there's more testing effort for us. So this could take uh, a little bit longer to get them ready. We still have the chipset from the Natami, so the AGA chipset from, from that point of time. So I do not expect this to take too long, but it could take three months or so before they are market ready. And what about the um, Amiga 1200 and 4000 versions then? Are they um, nearly complete or are they still in development? No, the 4000 um, version will certainly take a while. Uh, the reason is simply... Um, every bus protocol in the Amiga needs testing. So with every Amiga model, of course, is, um, it's easy to understand. This is a process which takes several months mm -hmm. to do all this testing. And we are kind of doing this in a, let's say, um, um, in a way we, we try to provide the cards to the people having um, the majority of computers first. And so the next thing which we will bring out will be the 1200 version because I think there are pretty many people waiting for this. And only after this is um, fully tested, we will go over to the 3000 and 4000, which then um, I hope will not take too much time. Well, I think, you know, for a small group like you guys are, you do incredible work. Um, and, you know, the whole Amiga community is going wild about this project. Thank you. And we'd uh, love to get you on again for an update, maybe when you release the 1200 version. 1200, yeah. What I like to know, I mean, we have an. Um, I, I could could use some user feedback here. <laughs> maybe you could give me your opinion. Uh, we we reach a certain performance level, right? And um, the performance level is um, basically um, the multiplication of uh, the internal design of our CPU and. Um, 
the, the, the speed grade of the FPGA which we are using. Um, right now we are using, uh, let's say, um, consumer level FPGA which is affordable and which you can buy like for, for $50 per unit. Um, of course, there are much more expensive FPGAs also available from the uh, vendors. There are ones you can buy for $300 or $500, which also are much more performing. Right? So thinking right now is for the new models to make the FPGA on a separate um, mini um, uh, PCB. So you have, the, the, let's say, the Vampire or the standalone system as a main PCB, like you would say the mainboard of the Amiga 4000, and you have the CPU FPGA on a, on a small module, like you would have the CPU on the CPU card on the Amiga 4000, right? This would allow us to, to make the FPGA swappable as an option to offer FPGAs which are much more expensive, but also reach like two or three times the performance. That makes sense. Well, uh, I think with us... Uh, because we're Amiga crazy people, we're, we're willing to throw five hundred pounds at some <laughs> stuff. But um, I think a good thing about the Vampire is the price point at the moment. So yeah. that makes sense be a to be able hard to pick balance, yeah. But yeah, I think that's a good idea, though upgrading. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we like it. Well, we'll, yeah. find, we'll find out what our audience have to say. We'll, yeah, uh, yeah we'll we'd it buy back. it, whatever. But um, we'll see what our audience say. <laughs> okay. Yeah, this this would be interesting for us. I mean, of course, these uh, let's say high-end FPGAs would be expensive. So such an upgrade module could cost on top, again, let's say 500 euros, for mm-hmm. example, or 400 maybe. But it would give, I don't know, two, three times the performance of what the Vampire can offer now. Well, people pay like two grand for power PC cards, don't they? You know what I mean? It's, uh... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Well, okay, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. We'll update you with uh, any feedback we get then. And um, it'd be great to get you on the show again in the future when development continues. Okay. Look forward to this. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming on. So we need your help then, Amiga community. How much are you willing to pay for a new vampire card based on features? Yeah, I'm going to shove a poll on the website and basically we're going to have a price range on there. So the Vampire team would like to know, considering, guys, that this is going to be two or three times faster than the Vampire. It's insane. Now, <laughs> I'm saying, for me, performance wins every time. I'd pay 500 plus euros. But we're nutters, so... <laughs> <laughs> but I like his, I like the idea Gunnar had then about doing, you know, plug-in CPU cards so you can kind of pick, you know? Yeah, yeah, an upgradable kind of choice, like the Amiga was. Yeah. Know? So... This is going to go directly back to the Vampire team. I know everyone in the Amiga community is loving this project right now. I'm really excited about it. Make sure you go onto our website, theretrohour.com. On the front page there from today, uh, Ravi's just set the poll up now, so you'll see it on there. Little tick box, let us know how much you'd be willing to pay for a Vampire card for the Amiga 1200 and 4000. And it's amazing because these guys are really pushing forward Amiga development. Think of this, standalone Vampire, that's what they were talking yeah. about. That's the new Amiga, isn't it? Absolutely. So uh, we'll put that little poll on our website right now. Please do fill it in and we'll get that back to them in the next week, theretrohour.com. Right then, before we get into this week's special guest, um, you found a pretty cool video today. Looking back at Nintendo in the 90s. Yeah, this is really cool. It's just like looking back at their office and you know we've seen kind of Atari and we've seen the Commodore ones but we've not really seen much from Nintendo. 
And uh, this just it's great. Have you had a look for it? Dan? I did watch it, and it's like they, they did this tour. Was it in 1994? That's when it was. Yeah. And really, you're talking. I mean, it's uh, the SNES have been out for a couple of years, and also few games in development. I mean, <laughs> what I love about this video as well, it is a French documentary about a Japanese com- company dubbed in German for a German TV channel <laughs> with English subtitles. So yeah. that's pretty much everyone covered, isn't it? You know, everyone can watch this. But I, I saw the bit, it's worth watching this video through because the best bit is in the last five minutes or so when they've actually got Miyamoto there and the guy who designed Mario. Yeah. And he's talking about the original design process and why he chose, like, you know, Mario to have big eyes and a big nose and a moustache so it'd appear on the little 8-bit sprites. And, and you know, I'm amazed that he's in a cubicle as well. Exactly like everybody else. He hasn't got this big giant office with Mario statues. It's just him in a cubicle yeah. like another worker. You look like it is, I mean it's very typical like mid nineties office, isn't it? Everyone's got these kind of partitions up and Yeah, big it, fat CRTs. It could be a call, <laughs> call centre, couldn't it, or something? You yeah, know, yeah. Like, you know, it's uh, it's mad that such a, a creative company were in a such a dry office environment. <laughs> <laughs> but the bit for me, you know, when Miyamoto is actually draws Mario. On yeah, the paper oh, yeah, it's, it's amazing. How much would that be worth now if you've got that original artwork? <laughs> <laughs> totally loads. So if you want to get a little insight into it, I think some of my favourite bits in here as well are when they're talking about the fact that the employees are only allowed in certain parts of the building. And even yeah, when the yeah, cameras you... are going past, they're like, well, we've turned this game off. Yeah, you're only allowed in this zone. Yeah, Ninja Gaiden area. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's really interesting to have a look back on, obviously, you know. At this era, I think that was probably the most exciting time for uh, me and Nintendo's history when the SNES was out and obviously they were working behind the scenes here. I guess the Ultra 64 and Project Reality was just starting. There's something I haven't told you, Dan. What is? When I went to buy my first console, I went to buy a SNES with a Mario All-Stars pack. And the PlayStation was coming out then. Yeah, it was yeah. just then, and my dad was like, don't get that old crap. <laughs> get the PlayStation. So. Well, even, I mean, you're looking at this, 94, that would have been just after the Sony PlayStation deal kind of fell through with Nintendo as well, yeah, wouldn't it? Yeah, so definitely. really exciting time to have a little glimpse inside. Definitely. So if you want to check that video out, we'll stick that in the show notes this week as well. Right, thank you for checking out episode number 34 of the Retro Hour podcast, of course, if you're a fan of the Amiga and uh, you want to vote in that vampire poll, make sure you check it out at theretrohour.com. We'll be out again next Friday and now for the next half an hour one for the Spectrum fans Jonathan Cordwell you know he's produced more games than anyone in the Spectrum <laughs> we'll find out all about his involvement in the Specky why he loves it some great little inside stories as well for the next 30 minutes on the Retro Hour and we'll catch you next Friday see you next week listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is our pleasure to welcome this week's special guest, Jonathan Caldwell. Hello, Jonathan. Hello. Now, uh, we've got you on the show this week because um, I heard that you've actually written more games for the Spectrum than any other author. Well, so they say, yeah. If you look on uh, World of Spectrum, I've, I've got a few dozen on there, so um, I've not seen anybody else who's written quite as many. Maybe the Shaw Brothers have written quite a few, but uh, yeah, it's... Uh, a dubious claim to fame. You're definitely up there, though. <laughs> uh, definitely one of the, you know, the most prolific. Well, let's start um, right at the beginning of your story, then. What what was your first experience with a computer, then? Where did it all begin? Oh, dear. Uh, can we count consoles? Mm. I, yeah, did have a, yeah, I did have maybe. a Pong console in the 70s, um, but that had four games on, you know, the standard football, tennis, solo and squash, but that was uh, that was about it until the, uh, the ZX81 came along, and I used to play uh, on my friend's ZX81s. Um, then, of course, when the Spectrum came along, of course, I thought, well, I've got to have one of these. It's got colour, it's got sound. Um, so I started saving up for one. Um, but uh, obviously, you know, being a kid, 11, 12 years old, 
Um, I didn't have a lot of money, a lot of pocket money to spare, and that did cost a fortune. It's 175 when it was first uh, announced, the Spectrum, the 48K anyway. So, um, you could triple, me... triple that in today's money probably, couldn't you? I, exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, it was uh, 1984 before I actually got to, to, to purchase one myself, which was a second-hand 48K with a, with a dodgy uh, power lead and a whole load of pirated C60s full of games from, you know, from, from the guy I bought it from. <laughs> nice. So how did you kind of start getting into coding and wanting to make games yourself? Well, it, it was... Um, well, I, I got into the spectrum because I love playing games uh, first and foremost. But um, once I started playing games, I thought, well, you know, I wouldn't mind having a go at writing some of these uh, myself. So, um, you know, I, I dug out the manual and I started having a look at that and learning to program in BASIC. And um, before long, I, I realised that it just wasn't up to the job. Sinclair BASIC is a little bit slow. It's a very good language. It's, it's got a lot of features, but it's just not got the speed. Um, so uh, I figured out I'd, I'd have to start learning machine code. Uh, how did you learn that? So you said you originally had a book. Did you start getting magazines or stuff for machine code? Yeah, there, there, were, there were magazines available. I mean, Sinclair User had a, a um, few few articles in it. Uh, I think Andrew Houston used to write uh, bits and pieces from time to time. Um, there was a series of mar- uh, articles by a guy called Marcus Jeffrey, who I think wrote Mutant Monty, was it? Mm. Or something like that. Um, and I just picked it up bit, bit by bit here and there, uh, using other people's routines in, in magazines, typing in magazine listings, uh, there was a, a very good um, magazine listing in a magazine called uh, ZX Computing. It was called Galactoids, and they actually took you through it uh, routine by routine and, and told you how it was written. And so I learned a lot about the machine uh, from that, from some of the ROM routines I could use in some of my games, how to display stuff on the screen, how to read the keyboard, uh, you know, uh, drive the beeper, uh, do all sorts of things. So that, that was a great starting point, and from, from there on I just started dabbling myself and, and, and getting routines together and started to, to write my own games. I think it's, you know, you could probably say that magazines were to thank for so many developers back in the 80s getting into programming machines because listing, typing listings were a massive thing. We used to spend hours doing those, didn't oh, we? Oh, and they never worked, did yeah, they? But never. That was, that, was, that was half of the fun, you see, because, you, because by de- debugging them, you, you, you'd sort of learn so much more than you would just typing in something which, which worked first time. And often the magazines would do mistakes in their listings, wouldn't they, as well? That didn't help. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and of course, you got the inevitable correction about six months later. But that, by that time, it was too late. I guess it's that kind of learning process that we don't really have now with computer games, where it's a shared learning, you know, everyone doing the same programme, everyone yeah. making the same mistakes and reading the letter of the guy that sent it in saying, this is actually wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And everyone was, was learning about it and people were sending in tips and, 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 you know, they were getting printed in the magazines and, and everybody was more or less at the same sort of level, really, mm. you know, back in the early days. And, and uh, we were all just, you know, learning as, as we went along. And going back to your, um, when you started coding then, when did you get to the point when you were able to release software, you know, out to the public? Oh, um, late 80s, really. I, th- I think, um, trying to think, I-, I started taking out uh, lineage ads in, um, in magazines. I think Sinclair User was one of the first, must have been about 1987. Um, and you- you'd get one or two orders um, via mail order uh, from-, from those. But uh, to be honest with you, the games I was writing back then weren't weren't really up to the job. They, they weren't very good. They weren't the sort of games that you'd, you'd get published in a uh, magazine even. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but they, they were my own efforts, so the best I could do. But I was learning all the time, and I think that that was the case with a lot of uh, these little adverts you get in the back of uh, Sinclair User and, and, and the and the like. Um, a lot of people would, would be just writing their own games and selling them uh, in these little ads, you know, which cost I don't know five people weird. And, like and cottage industry, it was mm. yes. Well, speaking of the magazines as well, I mean, you did actually have software featured on them. Um, Several Spectrum magazines like Crash and Sinclair User as well. How, yeah. how did those? Um, how did that kind of come about then? Getting your software well, into the mags. Once I started to get better and started writing sprite games, um, I started thinking, well, hello, you know, these are getting better and better. Maybe I'll have a go at sending one or two of them to uh, the, these magazines to, to see if I can get them on the cover tapes. So um, I sent one into Crash, which was uh, Egghead, which mm-hmm. is a platformer. And uh, to my surprise, uh, Richard Eddy, who was uh, in charge of the cover tape back then, rang me up and uh, said, yeah, we like it, and we'd like to put it on the uh, February edition uh, of, uh, of uh, the uh, the next magazine. So, um, yeah, I was uh, delighted. That must have been amazing. Um, Everyone read Crash here, didn't they? Yeah, it was, it was huge. It was a very, very big magazine back then. It was just before the spectrum just started to slide and the 16 bits really started to take off. And uh, being an egg-based game as well around yes. that period of time. <laughs> well, it was. It was sort of, yeah, I, I guess I couldn't really avoid the comparison with Dizzy. Um, it wasn't intentional, but um, I, I guess it probably didn't do Egghead any harm. I guess eggs were easier to draw. They were, that was the thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I tried all sorts of other shapes, but eggs were just so easy. Because we had the Oliver Twins on, they were talking about Dizzy, and they said originally it was meant to be a face. So, ah. yeah, they, they made it into an egg just because it was easy. I can understand that, yeah, screen, yeah so. definitely. So what was the reaction like after you got your um, your software published on Crash then? That must have been when you saw it in the shops. Do you remember seeing that cover tape on Oh, the yeah, yeah, that was amazing. Uh, I think my, my mum went out and uh, bought a copy just for herself, you know. I mean, uh, <laughs> that was uh, that was quite quite something. Uh, most of my friends had started getting into the ST at that time, so they weren't too impressed. But um, it, it was crazy getting letters through the post, you know. Um, from from people who played the game and see my um, name and address and the scrolling message that I'd stuck in the game, and uh, I got plenty of feedback from that. And, and people who write to me and tell me, "Oh, I've I've completed your game," or "I found a cheat mode," or, or whatever, you know. And sometimes they'd find pokes in your game and t- tell you, you know, things that you've forgotten that you put in. And well, oh yeah, right, now I remember I put that in. Yeah, it's really weird that you mentioned that actually because. You think about the life of the Spectrum in the C64, and they actually went into the 16-bit period. Mm. So, you know, you even had magazines that were out awfully late. So yeah. <laughs> what was it like being in that kind of crossover period still with the older system? It, it, was, it was a bit crazy. I mean, all my friends, as I said, had, had gone into the, the um, Atari ST and the Amiga maybe 89, 90, around that sort of time. So I was still writing games for your Sinclair and... Uh, Sinclair user for well, until 92, 93. I think the last issue of your Sinclair was as uh, August 93, was it? Uh, I think I had games on the June and July cover tapes. I was still sending in more games for inclusion, uh, you know, late in the, in the summer. And, and they eventually had to ring me up and say, sorry, but, we're, you know, we're closing the magazine in a few days. <laughs> Stop sending so, us stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, it was mad. Um so, so yeah, that, that was a sad time when, when your Sinclair finally went down, the last uh, Spectrum magazine. Well, I know you did actually get an Amiga, though, didn't you? You said an 89, so yes. w- what did you think of the machine then? I thought it was, it was a cracking machine. The, the graphics were, were great, the, the sound was fantastic. Um, some of the games were, of course, a lot more advanced than you get on the Spectrum. But uh, then again, of course, it was missing a few classics, you know, things like School Days, uh, uh, which, which I, I really loved on the Spectrum. I was a bit... I was in two, you know, it was half and half, half... 
part of me really loved the Spectrum games. Part of me sort of liked some of the, the Amiga stuff as well. So, but I really was rather addicted to Kickoff and Kickoff Two. Well, I was watching this TV show the other day called The Eighties with Dominic um, Samrook Ooh, on the that. BBC. Yeah. yeah, and he was saying that the reason the Spectrum was so successful was because of the price point mm. and the recession at the time. Yeah, you know. Um, did you find that even though the Spectrum wasn't so popular in shops and stuff, there was a massive user base still out there? There was. It was. It was pretty big. I, I don't know what uh, the readership of the magazines was like towards the end, but uh, I know it was. I mean, uh, at some stage in the eighties, it was in the hundreds of thousands, and it just started to tail off towards you know eighty nine, ninety. Um, but but there, there were still the users out there. They were still playing games, and I was still getting letters, even you know ninety two, ninety three, even after the, the Spectrum magazines had closed. I was still getting people asking me if I was still writing games and you know still selling them. Well, now the scene's massive as well with, yeah. of course, the remakes that are all happening. Um, yeah. What have you used a Vega? Uh, yes, I have a, a Vega. Yes, I have uh, sixteen games on the original Vega. Um, so when I heard that the Vega was coming out, I thought I'd, you know, send them a few, few of mine, a few of my old ones. Uh, obviously, Egghead, and in fact, the whole uh, Egghead series is on there, and uh, a few other games as well. Um, so, so that was uh, that was quite nice. Um, there are quite a lot of uh, good games on there. Farmer Jack, I don't know whether you've played that. It's Bob Smith, that's mm-hmm. his uh, game. That's that's a cracker. I really like that one. The whole Farmer Farmer Jack series. Um, and um, yeah, there are a few other modern titles on there, along with a load of classics, of course, a load of old uh, Ultimate games, uh, Trans Am and, and Jetpack. I mean, you can't go wrong with Jetpack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I know to a hardcore Spectrum fan, I shouldn't really mention the C word, but you know, obviously the Commodore 64 mm-hmm. was uh, big around that time as well. Did you, yep. at my school, I, I think it was like this in a lot of British schools, there was a massive rivalry between the C64 and uh, the Spectrum. Did you kind of get caught up in that at all, or did you experience it at all? Not particularly, no. It was more um, Spectrum and Acorn Electron. There were, there were a few um, Commodore 64 owners, but I, I don't think my year or, or the year below me were, were particularly um, really struck by the Commodore at that time. Uh, I did meet uh, Commodore 64 owners later, but mm-hmm. uh, but not, not while I was at school, no. So there's no real playground fisticuffs over you know <laughs> who had the best 8-bit or anything like that. I mean, the Acorn Electron mob were very definitely into the programming and... Uh, of course, I actually had one of those as, as well myself at, at one point, just just so that I could get my uh, my level computer studies. And you did it for BBC Basic, you see, as, as everyone did. Yeah, well, everyone used like Acorn machines were the education standard then. I mean, we all had them in exactly. schools. And yeah, it had a nice Basic though, didn't it? On the, it did, it did. Yeah, Def Proc and you know Define Function as, as well. You know, it was, I uh, totally forgot about the Acorn crew. There used to be a little group at our <laughs> school as well. Yeah, yeah. and they're always into robotics. And oh, yeah, they, they did some of that stuff, as well. Uh, yeah, they, they always had all the, the the most impressive hardware at the time, the disc drives, and yeah. <laughs> all piled up high. You know. So, how long did you stick with the Spectrum for then? In your first run, my first run, um, I don't think I ever really um, got rid of a, a Spectrum. I think I've always had Spectrums. Um, I was still programming the thing until the late nineties, and then sort of had a, a break for two or three years, and then started again in two thousand and two with Egghead in Space. So I've not really uh, had that much time out, to be honest. It's been Spectrum all the way through. What is it about the Spectrum, then, that, that holds you to it? It's, it's simplicity, really. Uh, it's a, a very blank canvas, so anything you want to do, you can do. It's just a matter of, uh, of sitting down and working out what you want to do, how you want to do it, and how best to do it with the uh, CPU power you have available. There's 
there's not too much that's going to get in the way. But then again, there's not too much help on the other hand either. So, you know, it, it's quite a nice sort of blank canvas, as I say. Well, um, you've tried to help some users with development with a game, Arcade Games Designer. Ah, yes. Yes, a piece of software, yeah. yeah. So uh, could you tell us more about that? Ah, right. well, well, this is a piece of software which uh, I, I guess we all wanted back in the day. Uh, we'd have all given our right arms for a, a game designer package that you could program in a language similar to BASIC, but which gave results which were sort of, uh, which were, you know, of, of decent quality, which were, you know... Decent speed and stuff. Yeah, decent yeah. speed, you know, which you, you might get accepted on a magazine cover tape or even a budget software house, you know, I mean, you can bounce sprites around the screen at 25 frames per second yeah, yeah you know it's that's that's something you couldn't really do back in the day with, with the, the, the packages we had available we had things like game designer by quicksilver which you know wasn't standalone you couldn't create standalone games with it we had Haig from was it melbourne house mm-hmm. um that again wasn't standalone and it really wasn't very fast either there were one or two other attempts i think uh which which were made, but they weren't flexible enough to to um, to give you the results you wanted. So, arcade game designer was an uh, attempt to uh, create a uh, one program that you could sit down, which would do everything, which would do your sprites, your background blocks, your your map, uh, your program logic, everything, all in one program that you could sit down and do, and would be simple for for anybody to to pick up and understand it and produce their own standalone games with. How long did that take you to produce that? It must have been. Oh dear! Um, the initial development was was several months, uh, and that was just to get the, the very first sort of um, bug riddled uh, version out, which was I think two thousand and eight, um, and that was was very flickery and and uh, very simple. Only worked on on the forty eight k machine. It was very very basic, but it, it more or less did what I wanted it to do. It, it had the the um, the editor where you could edit your code and uh, it had the sprite editor, the block editor, the map, and and so it had the basics. Uh, but since then I've gone on, I've been developing it, so it's it's been really constant under constant development since two thousand and eight. So that's what eight years now. Wow, time flies. Yeah, so it does. <laughs> what kind of um, setup do you use for development these days on the spectrum? Then is it original hardware? Or do you use emulation oh, no. or? No, no, no. Uh, back in the day, I used to program on, on the original hardware, but uh, that was a nightmare after the disk drive went down and I had to do everything on tape. Now, these days, um, I use a, a PC, obviously. I have uh, emulators. Um, I use uh, the SJASM Plus assembler. Uh, and then, um, as I say, I test on the, the emulators. So it, it's very easy. I can just use a, a PC text editor to, to write the code. Uh, and it is so much easier. It's just, you know, it's... You, test you, you modify you test you modify it's not a case of having to um load your code on the machine and then it doesn't work it crashes then you have to load up the assembler again and load in the source code and make changes then rebuild it that was just just such a pain back in the day nowadays it's just unbelievably easy you look at you look how you did stuff back then then you think how on earth did we did yeah. we have the patience to do that i mean it was insane <laughs> when you think about it yeah particularly if you didn't have a disk drive do you have many like of those three inch floppies around then that the spectrum used Oh no, not not the the Amstrad ones. No, I okay. had a, an Opus Discovery disk drive, um, and that took the three and a half inch ones, which are more standard. Um, and and that I wrote Egghead with that. Uh, well, almost wrote Egghead with that. It was ninety five percent there, and then the disk drive went down, and um, ended up having to hack the last few routines in there manually, and um, yeah, do it, doing it with tape. And then everything else was written using tapes on on a battered old plus two uh, after that which was a, a major pain. 
Well, uh, one thing Matthew Smith used to say was when he was coding Jet Set Willy, he'd have to do it at night because his mum would put the kettle on for tea and it would crush the spectrum. <laughs> oh, yeah, you, you did get that sometimes if the, the freezer started or, or you know someone switched the television on or, or something like that or someone else just walked into the room and <laughs> it, it crashed. That was part of the... I think that's part of the quirkiness of it, though, isn't it? And mm. it's, it's, it's very British, that, isn't it, that the hardware <laughs> would do that? I mean, we, we mentioned Amstrad there. I mean, uh, obviously, Amstrad took over Sinclair yeah. um, in the late 80s. What, did, did that kind of, what did you think of that then? Was, was that anything that like, affected you, or did, did you think they were going in the wrong direction? Or? I wasn't uh, terribly convinced at the time, but um, since then, I mean, I, I've looked at the build quality of the Amstrad machines, and, and they are better than the Sinclair builds. I mean, yeah, I mean, a lot of people criticised Amstrad, but um, I, I, I thought that their build quality was, was so much better than uh, anything that had gone before. Sinclair weren't the most reliable of uh, companies when it came to uh, hardware, as I say. I mean, uh, um, your machine would, would sometimes reset when someone walked into the room or something, particularly if you were loading. So, uh, yeah, the, the Amstrads were, were far more robust. Uh, I mean, my, my Plus 2 is still working. It's never needed repairing, and you know, it's still going strong. So, um, yeah, I thought they were better, better machines. Did you ever try any of the other Sinclair machines, like the QL and? Not the, the QL, machines? no, mm-hmm. no. Um, I had uh, I still have a ZX eighty one somewhere at home. Uh, I've never had a ZX eighty though. I'd really love one of those, but I bet they go for a fortune on eBay these days. You couldn't give them away about fifteen years ago, but now, yeah, no. like ridiculous money. Like anything retro, isn't it? All of a yeah. sudden. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you uh, make much money? Doing Specky games, or Ooh, right? Um, you want to know what the, the magazine cover tapes paid? We are quite interested. Yeah, yeah it depended. Um, the lowest amount I ever got paid was fifty pounds, and that was for Haunted House. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the time, it was a hundred, two hundred quid, something like that. I think uh, your Sinclair usually paid a couple of hundred. I think uh, Sinclair user would go up to two hundred and fifty. Um, but yeah, Egghead, Egghead two were a hundred quid. Not bad, though. It was all right yeah. back in the day, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, was, uh, it was a few quid, you know. You keep yourself in uh, blank tapes and uh, pay your electricity bills. Buy more stuff for the computer, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> really that, that was it, yeah. <laughs> well, obviously, you've, you've done, like, some arcade conversions as well, stuff like uh, Mega Blast and that kind of thing. Where did the ideas for these come from, then, and how did you how did you go about doing those? Oh, well, back in the day, I was more interested in the programming exercise and, and doing something I hadn't done before. So Mega Blast was just an attempt to do a scrolling shoot 'em up um, the idea came from uh, the Amiga game Gold Runner 2. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted a, a game where you could move a spaceship up and down a scrolling background, sort of like Iridium, but ten through 90 degrees. And then you'd be zapping aliens and collecting hostages and, and uh, collecting ceremonies to get to the next level. Uh, so it was a very simple game, but um, yeah, it was more about the, the challenge of getting all the scrolling background and all the sprites moving around smoothly uh, on, on the screen, uh, which is... Not easy to do on a Spectrum, which doesn't have any uh, hardware support for that kind of thing. Must have been quite a buzz when you managed to do something that's technically quite a challenge and then you see it running on the screen. Yeah, it it was. I mean, it's not as smooth as it might have been, but, um, you know, it was my first effort at a a scrolling uh, shoot-em-up. So, yeah, I was was delighted with the the result in the end, and, um, yeah, it it worked quite well. Um, If if there were any add-ons you could have for the Spectrum, the original one, like, that you wish could have been on there, what would they be? Oh, now that's a good question. Uh, I guess 
hardware scrolling would have been nice to have, or sprites. Uh, it would have made uh, programming games a lot easier. Um, but then again, it wouldn't have been uh, so much of a challenge. And of course, I'd probably not be as good a programmer today if I hadn't sort of overcome all these difficulties uh, because of the, the lack of, of hardware back in the day. So, so you probably wouldn't have enjoyed it as much. Um, it wouldn't have been as challenging. <laughs> yeah. Well, you mentioned you had the Amiga, but you stuck with the Spectrum. It's probably because the Spectrum was more of a challenge. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I did write a point-and-click card game on the Amiga, but never went any further than that. Uh, it was always a Spectrum that was the, the real challenge to program, uh, even though it, it had very basic graphics, it, it had very simple sound. But um, the, the challenge was there trying to get a simple, playable little game that, that people would, would enjoy and play and have fun with, uh, in, you know, in, into what? Just over 40k of, of available RAM, really. Trying to get every little bite. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> Obviously, you know, you knew which system variables you couldn't touch and uh, which areas of, of RAM you'd have to avoid. Obviously, the screen took up 6.75k as well, so there were, there were areas you couldn't really do a lot with. But, you know, the rest of the RAM, you, you know, you, you could play with uh, and, and do what you wanted with. And, of course, you had to leave room for the stack as well. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned that you've stuck with the Spectrum pretty much, you know, since you got your first one back in the late 80s. Um, did you kind of see the rise of the internet changing the Spectrum community? And did, you, did it make you realise that people are still interested? I was amazed uh, to find other Spectrum users uh, out there. I mean, I, when did I get on the internet? 98, 99. Uh, I think one of the first things I, I typed into Google was uh, ZX Spectrum to see what else was out there. And uh, I was amazed to find the World of Spectrum website. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think I spent a little time looking at some of the games, downloading a few of them and playing them and thinking, well, this is great, you know, some of the games I never had back in the day and always wanted to see. And, of course, then um, my attention turned to the forums and uh, started reading those and uh, seeing that there were lots of other enthusiasts out there who were still using the Spectrum. And I thought, well, I really have to get back into this. I really have to start writing games again. So, uh, so that's what I did in 2002 and, um, well, the rest is history, really. So I think, you know, we mentioned the magazines before. They were really the centre of the community. When yeah. they went, you didn't really know if anyone else was out there still. You thought, you just no. assumed everyone gave up, I guess. Yeah, the community sort of just fragmented. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just didn't really exist until the, the internet came along and, and bang, everybody was back there again. That was that was just magic. you got like 100,000 people posting on Spectrum forums. Where are all these people come from? <laughs> yeah, we were talking about World of Spectrum the other day, weren't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. Just an absolutely massive site. <laughs> it, it is. It's incredible that the amount of people on there, and um, yeah, it, it's amazing to get. I mean, the, the community that's built up there over the past few years. I mean, there's something like is it a hundred Spectrum games released every year? It's These crazy. It's crazy. Because yeah. because we hear so much about Spectrum, and we hear so much about new systems coming out, new games coming oh, yeah, out, the new systems, and yeah. we're just amazed. <laughs> like, what, what do you think it is? I mean, I think it's been, in recent years, I've noticed, you know, obviously we've got these new spectrums that are being made now. What do you think has kind of reignited a lot of people's interest in it over the last, like, five years or so? Um, retro has always been popular, hasn't it? I mean, people like to look back on their, their childhood days and with, with fondness and maybe recreate them, when, you know, as when they've grown up and, and um, they... Uh, they have the money they didn't have back in the day and they have the knowledge they didn't have back in the day. They have access to the information so they can build these machines. You know, as a kid, they'd have perhaps thought, well, ooh, I'd, have loved a, I'd love a Spectrum with more colours or with a better sound chip. But, well, you know, when you've grown up, you maybe you, know, you have the, uh, 
the, the ability to do that. You have the, the support out there. You have the, the community, the people, the experts who can help you out with that, and you can go out there and uh, do what you always wanted to. It's like you look at now, you can get like um, SD card readers for every model of the Spectrum, can't yeah, you? Yeah. And it's like if someone had told you when you were a kid that you could literally go into a website, download every Spectrum game ever, put it on this little bit of plastic and then have them there, it's like that would have blown your mind. It, it, it would, yeah. I mean, I remember a friend of mine had, um, he had an Opus Discovery as, as well as I did and uh, he had 20 games on, on one disc and I was wow, 20 games on one <laughs> disc. Well, that's just blown that away, you know, and these little, these little cards you can get these days. I mean, what is it, the Div MMC or whatever it's called, mm. and, and there are others as well, I think. Uh, and, and the, um, oh, isn't there a device for the ZX81? I think there's, there's, if you've ever seen Dragon's Lair on the ZX81, yes, that have. is that yeah. is really impressive. Yeah. Who made that? Was that Jim, uh, Jim, Jim Bagley? Bagley. Bagley yeah. Made it. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, uh, one thing that really impressed me, I don't know if you've heard of it, Spectronet, which was uh, a way of playing multiplayer <laughs> online games. Uh, on the spectrum <laughs> it was like spectrum. a little piece of hardware yeah uh, f- released a few years ago you could quite recent was it yeah oh, yeah okay. and i'd gone to this event and everybody was playing esports but on spectrum so i was just like what's going on <laughs> it's crazy are there any hardware developments that you've been excited by recently though? um the next sounds uh, quite impressive uh, i think um yeah, the, I think Jim Bagley's working on that as well. He's been working on the accelerator board. I think he's uh, he's actually putting hardware sprites in there now. So, oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, we'll have a few hundred sprites to play with, so that, that's going to be cool. Um, so, yeah, the, the whole community is quite excited about that. There's a, there's a page on Facebook about the Spectrum uh, next. Um, so that's exciting. The, the Vega Plus, of course, is, is out, I think, at uh, the end of September, or it's due out the end of September, and I understand that is still on course. Yeah, no, there has been a bit of controversy over it. <laughs> there has, but there's been an announcement just uh, today I was reading on Facebook, so that they've been posting some pictures of some um, prototypes, uh, some little plastic model um, moulding or something. Oh, OK. So, um, so yeah, that, that, that looks quite nice, um, quite slim. Um, so uh, I'm looking forward to seeing that uh, coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, Isn't there like yeah. three or four different projects coming out at the moment? There's, a, there's too many to keep track of, really. <laughs> You're never sure if you want Spectrum hardware at the moment, no. are you? <laughs> so how do you um, like sum up the Spectrum scene today, then? How do you describe it? Big. Yeah, it's, um, it's so many people, so many different people doing different things. And, um, yeah, the people writing software, people making their own hardware. Um, and others who just sit in the middle and, and play games and, and just enjoy it. And it's... Uh, it's, it's cool. So what are you working on at the moment? Oh, uh, right. Well, um, I've been working on um, a PC uh, version of uh, arcade game design. What, what I mean by that is that, uh, um, converting arcade game designer to the PC so that you can edit the Spectrum games on the, the PC itself. Oh, okay. Now, Paul Dunn's been doing the editor for that. I've written the, uh, the compiler, the game engine. Uh, we've, we've made some uh, modifications. We've... we've uh, improved the um, the basic language, but it's, it's basic inspired language, uh, and um, it's going to be capable of doing a lot more than AGD is. Um, as I say, Paul Dunn's been doing a lot of the hard work on on the editor, and he's been doing a fantastic job on that. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to seeing that uh, come out soon. Uh, that's as part of the um, the Every Child Can Code initiative, which uh, I think Dr. David Levy's uh, yeah. been um, organising. So. Yeah, we're looking forward to, to that. We've been working on the documentation for that and making sure it's all um, in a form that seven-year-olds can understand. Uh, so hopefully we should be getting a few more uh, 
seven-year-olds and, and kids of the next generation uh, interested in uh, producing their own Spectrum games. And That's crazy, yeah. That's awesome, yeah, isn't it? Keep it going for yeah. the next generation. Yeah, yeah. Pass the torch on, yeah, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> so if people want to find out more about what you're up to then, have you got a website or anywhere people can go uh, to? Yes, it's, uh, if I remember, it's www.spanglefish.com forward slash egghead. Excellent, we'll pop the, uh, that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the show this week. Thank you for having me. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. Cheers. Cheers.